As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we pray that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened so that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all of your fullness. Open your word to us now, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1. If you're visiting with us this evening, we're glad to have you here. We've been, we just started a series through the book of Ruth, so you haven't missed a whole lot. We're on to verse 6 of chapter 1. Um, so we're picking up our, our study of the book there. And so we're going to read from Ruth chapter 1. And although our text will really be uh, verses 6 through 18 this evening, just to remind us of how the book starts, we'll begin our reading at the beginning of the book. Um, If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you can find Ruth on many of them at page 282. Uh, Ruth is towards the beginning of the Bible between Judges and 1 Samuel. So the book of Ruth, again, our text will be verses 6 through 18, but to remind us of where we are, let's begin our reading at verse 1. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "Go, return each of you to your mother, to each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband." And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. 
and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, You may have noticed in the bulletin that the title of our sermon this evening is the Exodus from Moab. Um, And normally when we think of the Exodus, we think of Israel leaving their Exodus in uh, Egypt. And this is certainly not a national Exodus, but I think this is another Exodus story, another kind of story of moving out of Exodus from one place and coming out and going to another. This is the Exodus from Moab for Ruth and Naomi. Um, And even though this is a different kind of Exodus from the Exodus we usually think of in Egypt at the time of Pharaoh and Moses, um, there are certain elements of an Exodus story, certain themes or motifs that you can see playing themselves out. This kind of Exodus story has many of the same kinds of features that we see in other stories of Exodus. And one of the main features I think we see in this passage is that pattern of the Lord acting in remembrance of his covenant promises to his people and his people acting in response to those promises being kept. Um, The Lord acts and his people react. The Lord acts in remembrance of his covenant promises and his people respond with faith and obedience. Um, And that's what we see in this story and that's how we want to think about this passage together this evening, to think about the Lord's action and then to look at the women's reaction. And so that's a very simple way I know of going through, but I think it'll be an easier way for us to follow what happens, just to think about the Lord's action in this passage and then to think about the women's reaction, how they respond to the Lord. Um, Last week was kind of a heavy consideration of judgment from the first few verses of Ruth, to think about all of the the faithlessness of Israel at the time of the judges, the faithlessness of this family in leaving the promised land, uh, the judgment that fell upon them with the deaths of uh, the men in the family, the childlessness of the families. We we saw a lot of heavy things last week uh, about the Lord's judgment. But this is a this is a time in the passage where really the Lord's mercy takes center stage. Um, And what the Lord has done for his people is the motivating factor for everything else that happens in this story. Um, In verse 6, the covenant mercy of our God takes really center stage in the story. We're told that Naomi is going to return to the land of Judah that her family had left. And we're told why she's doing that, why she's decided to go home, why she's decided to return to the promised land. And what are we told in verse 6? Uh, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Um, The the motivating factor for everything that happens in this story is the action of the Lord. That the Lord had visited his people. Uh, It's the first time the name of the Lord appears in this passage. Uh, that, That name that always comes in all capital letters. Right, The Lord, that was always reminding us that this is God's special covenant name, Yahweh, that's being recorded. Um, that's not the first time I've pointed that out to you, is it? Um, you might think I do that all the time. And the reason I do that is kind of intentional because every time we see that name, it should stand out to us. It should make a difference to us. 
Um, I probably told you the story before of when I was a seminarian and preached a sermon on a passage on Rahab and asked my seminary professor to sort of critique the sermon and say how I did. Um, and he said to me, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a good sermon, uh, but there was one word in the passage that you should have made more of. And I think it would be more helpful if I, if I don't just tell you, but if you try to figure out which is the word in the passage that you should have made more of. And so, you know, like an idiot, I'm looking at Joshua 2 and thinking, I have no idea which is the word in this whole passage that I should have made more of. Um, and you can probably guess the word was the Lord. So Rahab appeals to the Lord and to his protection. Rahab uses his name. She uses Yahweh's name. And he said, when that happens, it's important every time. And so I'm very thankful for that because now every time I see it, I think, oh, that name's important. It's there for a reason. And when I preach, I try not to admit the fact that it's there and that it's important. But in this book that's had so much of reminders of the judgment and the failure of God's people and the covenant curses that have come down upon them, it's wonderful that here is where the Lord's name is remembered, the Lord Yahweh who has made promises to his people, the God who is a covenant God, and we're reminded that the Lord has visited his people. Right? The Holy Spirit could have just said the Lord gave them food. Uh, but he didn't say that, did he? He said the Lord visited his people. It's a reminder that the Lord has visited his people in his great mercy. There was great discipline that had come on the people at the time of the judges because of what they had done wrong. This is a severe discipline to have the land be in a, in a state of famine for 10 years. Um, it's a severe judgment, but... It's a reminder that the Lord in his wrath has remembered mercy. The Lord is not against his people forever. He's visited them with his mercy and provided for them. And I think this is a vital starting point in the book of Ruth. That this action of God visiting his people, turning away his discipline from them and remembering his covenant promises is what starts everything else in the passage. Uh, Everything else in this story is begun by this action of the Lord. And I think it's a point we should not miss. The passage reminds us of God's judgment against sin and the severe consequences of covenant breaking, but it also reminds us of God's rich mercy towards his dearly loved people. It reminds us of something essential, that God does not forget his people. Uh, that God does not abandon the promises that he's made to his people. And it's worth thinking and, and pausing for a moment to think, why does he do that? Why doesn't the Lord forget to show mercy? Why does he always come back around to that? And the simple answer is this, he doesn't forget his mercy because he loves his people. It's because of the great love of God for his people that he doesn't forget his mercy to them. Uh, That's one of the wonderful things that Paul meditates on in Ephesians chapter 2 when he talks about the mercy of God, the great mercy of God. Um, In Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 we read, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's such an important thing for us to keep in mind that God's mercy flows to his people because of the great love with which he's loved us. That's why his mercy flows. Because where would we be if we had God's mercy but not God's love? 
You ever thought about that question? I remember being kind of arrested by that question in a, reading a devotional years ago that was given by a Reformed theologian in a, in a seminary chapel. Um, and he sort of posed that question, looking at this passage from Paul's epistle to the, to the Ephesians and said, imagine for a moment you took that phrase out, the great love for which he, with which he loved us. Imagine that phrase was not there, that God was just rich in mercy even while we were still sinners and he made us alive in Christ, but there was no mention of his love. What would be the result? And it was interesting because he said this, what a different outlook on the matter would immediately result. It would then say God saw us in the misery of our sins and was moved in mercy to save us in Christ. Thus the foundation of our salvation would be nothing but a natural feeling of pity in God because of the wretchedness of his creatures. It would essentially boil down to just God feeling sorry for us. Just seeing us in our misery and feeling sorry for us that we were so miserable. Um, And it would still be a good thing. It still would be a wonderful thing if that's why God helped us because he looked at us in our misery. We sometimes help people for that reason. You see someone who's homeless and your heart goes out to them because of the situation they're in and you want to help them. Um, If you feel sorry for them, you're moved by compassion to help them. You, You pity them in that sense. And it it moves you to show mercy. And it's a good thing to show mercy. It wouldn't be a bad thing entirely. But the fact that God loves us changes the whole thing. Just as it's one thing to help someone who's just, you know, you, you just feel so sorry for when you see them in the situation that they're struggling in, it would be a completely different thing, wouldn't it, if you saw that person who was struggling and you recognized them to be a member of your family, right? Someone you loved, who was in this circumstance. You wouldn't just be moved to pity them, you'd be moved by love. And it would change how you dealt with them, wouldn't it? It would change what they meant to you as you gave them mercy. And that's why it's so important that that line in Ephesians is not omitted, that it is there, that love is the root of the mercy of God. He doesn't just help us because he feels sorry for us in our wretchedness. He helps us because he loves us. The same theologian went on to say, it makes a great difference whether a redeemed person must say, God saw me in my misery and therefore had said to me, live, or whether along with that, the believer may voice the glorious thought, God has loved me with an everlasting love. Therefore, he has drawn me to himself with the cords of loving kindness. Why does God visit his people in mercy? He does it because he loves us. His love is what motivates him to do what he does. And that's why God's people can have that certainty that even when God is angry with us on account of our sin, even when he disciplines us, he disciplines us because he loves us. Um, And his love ultimately always wins out for the people that believe in him. Um, His anger doesn't last. His discipline doesn't last. It's his love that lasts. Right? Isaiah celebrated that fact in Isaiah 54, verses 7 and 8. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. 
In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about and contemplate as God's people? Um, that God's anger against our sin can be real. When we fail him, we, we, we sometimes are disciplined for our own sake, but always because he loves us. And the anger towards our sin is brief and momentary. Psalm 103 says, he will not chide forever. He will not always chide, nor will he hold his anger forever. That's temporary. But for God's dearly loved people, his love and compassion are overwhelming and everlasting. What a wonderful comfort that is to know. The brief anger will always be overcome by great compassion. That God will always be merciful because of the great love with which he's loved us. And so the faithful covenant love of God is always the hope of God's people, no matter how the dark nights of our failures become. Um, When Jeremiah was at one of the darkest moments in redemptive history, um, after the destruction of Jerusalem, he said, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Uh, Great is his faithfulness because great is his love. It will always overshadow that anger. And so for those who love him and believe in him, yes, you know, our sins may cause God to be angry with us and discipline us for a time, but it's always because he loves us. He doesn't delight in disciplining us. He delights in showering blessings on his dearly loved people. And that's why the hope of God's people is always God will visit us. In time, the Lord will visit us. And we are assured of that because in these last days he has visited us in his son. The Lord Jesus Christ came as the living embodiment and manifestation of the love that the Father has for us. And his gift, the Father's gift of Christ to the world shows us how much we're loved. Um, The gift of our Savior shows us how much we are loved as a people. And what Jesus did for us shows how much he loves us. That he's willing to die on the cross for our sins. That he rose for our justification. That he's ascended into heaven that he might rule over us, governing us by his word and spirit, defending us and preserving us in the salvation he's won for us. He ever lives to intercede for us. He's coming again in glory soon to save us. Why is he doing all of those things? What motivates him? It's his great love with which he's loved us. Um, And that is always the hope of God's people, that we are a loved people. And because the Lord loves us, he will not forsake us. In time, he will visit us. And so right here at the beginning of the book of Ruth, even before any of the characters in the book have uttered a single word. We are powerfully reminded that God acts first for his people out of his great love, and then God's people react to the love of God. Um, And this this passage is all about how the people in the story react to the God who visits. Um, This is a recurring theme. There's a reaction that the Lord is looking for when he visits his people. 
Um, there's something that he wants to see happen. He's visited for a purpose. And the purpose is to turn back his people to himself, that they would return to him. And we know that that's what the Lord is looking for because the Holy Spirit makes it very clear in this passage by continually using the same Hebrew verb over and over and over again. Uh, There's a word that appears over and over again. Um, It appears as return in verses 6, 7, 8, 10, and 16. Return, 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 return. Um, It appears in verses 11 and 12 in the form turn back. Turn back, turn back. Um, In verse 15, when Orpah has left, we're told that she has gone back. Um, But all of those are the same Hebrew verb in a different form. Do you see how the Holy Spirit is making it very clear what is is supposed to be happening in in this passage? We're just bombarded with return, 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 turn back, turn back, go back. We can't miss that theme that's being driven home. There's a response that the Lord wants when he visits his people, and it's for them to turn to him, uh, to return to him. Um, And the question in this passage is, the Lord has visited, how will they react? Will they turn back to him? Will they turn away from him? What will they do? Um, Because the proper response, of course, is to turn to God, to return to him. So what do these women do? Well, I think in the first place we see that Naomi does turn back to God, but she, she seems to turn back to God with a kind of flawed theology. Um, she turns back to God, but there are both positives and negatives in how she responds here. Um, it, it makes her a sort of enigmatic figure for some commentators. Uh, do we think that sort of puzzling, you know, is, is she someone to be commended for what she does? Is she someone who we should look down on for certain ways because of how she reacts? How should we view her? And I think it's hard for people because there's both positive things in what she does here and negative things in what she does here. Um, she, re- she decides to return to the promised land. That's a good thing. Um, That's where she should be. They shouldn't have left in the first place. So she's going back. That's good. She blesses her daughters-in-law in in the Lord's name. Right? She blesses them in Yahweh's name. She blesses them for their past faithfulness to their husbands. She blesses them for their future happiness, wishing them well. And so she blesses them. So those are good, certainly good and positive characteristics. Uh, But there are also some negative things we see in what she does and what she says. When Orpah and Ruth want to stay with her, uh, she seems to see no reason that they should come with her. Um, She can't seem to think of a reason why they should come with her to the promised land. Um, And when she sort of shares what she's thinking with us and with these two women, you notice how it's completely fixated on, on worldly hopes, on worldly concerns, which are not nothing, right? It's not to, not to belittle them, but it seems like she's single-mindedly focused on, on worldly concerns, right? She says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase. I'm old. I'm too old to be married again. And even if I were to get married again tonight and have children tonight, are you going to wait for my sons that I have tonight to grow up and be old enough to marry? Um, so 
imagine that scenario, right? That, that makes no sense for you to come with me. I don't have sons to give you. Um, you'd be much better off in Moab trying to find husbands here and have families and children here. It all, it all makes sense from a worldly perspective, right? She says, from a worldly perspective, Judah doesn't have anything to offer you. There's no reason to come back with me to Bethlehem. But she also seems to regard it as something of a matter of indifference whether these two women who married her Israelite sons go back to their people and to their gods. Right? When she presses on them to go and Orpah has gone and Ruth has not gone, um, what does Naomi try to say to her? Right? In verse 15, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. She doesn't seem to think that's a very serious thing to go back to the gods of Moab. Chemosh, who was the the main deity of the Moabites. Um, That doesn't seem to be a good thing to suggest to someone to do. That's why we sang Psalm 16. It reminds us that the, the sorrows of those who run after other gods will multiply. Where is the concern for their spiritual lives from Naomi? That that doesn't seem to be right or good. Uh, When Ruth makes this wonderful statement of commitment, Naomi offers no response. That doesn't seem to be good. What's going on? Why, Why this positive and negative? What are we to make? And that's why I think she's operating with a kind of flawed theology. She has some idea of God, but she's gotten to a point where she sees God as sovereign but not as Savior. God is in control, but he's not compassionate. Um, And that can be a problem for God's people if we think that God is just sovereign, that God is just in control, but that God is not loving, that God is not compassionate. I think we see the, the spring from which her theology is flowing when she talks about the problem of her situation. And she says, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's kind of gotten to the point where she thinks, you know, the Lord is against me and the Lord will always be against me. That that seems to be really the thrust of what she's saying. The Lord is kind of just against me now and forever. And really one of the themes of this wonderful book is going to be to unfold that for Naomi and to show her that that's not true. That the Lord's hand is not against her forever. Uh, But it's a reminder to us if we fall into that way of thinking, we forget that God is compassionate. Just think of God's hand as having gone out against us. Then that will lead to a kind of hopelessness. That this is the way it is and this is the way it will always be. She's lost sight of God's love, the great love with which he's loved his people. And part of this book will be to bring her back to that sense of love. So I think Naomi reacts with a kind of flawed theology. Um, I think Orpah goes following a false hope. Um, Orpah doesn't make much of an appearance in this story, and she's quickly gone again. Um, but I think she buys into the picture of worldly realities that Naomi offers her. Uh, to say, what, what is there for me in Judah? 
Uh, she only sees two options. Sinclair Ferguson really helpfully laid this out. Um, that if she goes to Judah, she may have the Lord, but she'll have nothing else. There's nothing else for her there, right? No home, no real prospects of marriage, no family, no people of her own. Um, if she goes to Judah, she may have the Lord, but she won't have anything else. Um, and if she stays in Moab, she may well find a home and prospects of marriage and a family and her own children and her own people, but she won't have the Lord. And that seems to be the choice that is set before her, and sadly, she chooses to go and have everything but the Lord. That doesn't mean that she's a horrible person. This passage tells us that she was a faithful wife, that she was faithful in her widowhood to her mother-in-law and to her sister-in-law, doesn't mean that Orpah didn't go on to live a happy life um, and find all of those things that Naomi said she may find in Moab, but she didn't find God. Uh, She left God to do what she did. Um, And I think we really have to ask the question, can she find rest, the kind of rest that Naomi talks about in verse 9, without the Lord? Um, And so I think she turns away from the Lord pursuing a false hope. It's Ruth, I think, alone who makes the full commitment, the full commitment to the Lord. This is one of the great statements of faith in the Bible, right? This is one of the great statements of commitment in all the scriptures, Uh, Ruth's purpose to follow the Lord. When she's told, go back to your people, Moab, go back to your God, Chemosh, and responds wonderfully, Moab is not my God, and or, Moab is not my people, and Chemosh is not my God. My people are your people, and my God is your God. My God is Yahweh. And that's the choice she makes for life and death. Right? Notice that, that she says, that's, that's my commitment, life and death to your people and to your God. I will live where you live, And I will die where you die. And where you die, that's where I'll die, and they'll bury me there. That's about as much of a commitment as you can make. Um, A commitment for life. Where you die, I will die, verse 17. There will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Uh, She swears this oath, which is a significant oath, right? It's significant because of what she swears to do, what what she's swearing. I mean, maybe that's what sticks out to us, that she's saying, you know, may the Lord strike me dead if I don't do what I've said I'm going to do. That's a pretty significant oath to take. But I think the significance that the Holy Spirit wants us to see here is that she takes this oath in the name of Yahweh. May the Lord do so to me. You swear in the name of your own God. And so this is just another indication of how Ruth has thinking, how Ruth's heart has been set on Yahweh as her God. That even when she takes an oath, she takes an oath in the name of Him, uh, showing just how much that God is her God. And she's making the choice that Orpah was unwilling to make and say that even if Judah has nothing but the Lord... I'll take that, to have the Lord and nothing else, 
That's why this is one of the great statements of faith in all of Scripture. Because she realizes there is nothing for her in Judah but hardship. Nothing there except for her God. Her God. Um, That's what makes this commitment so wonderful. And I think having this statement of faith here really shows us that what she is doing is making that commitment that Joshua told God's people to make. In Joshua 24, 23, he said, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And that's what she's doing. Uh, She's making that commitment of discipleship that her descendant of many generations later, the Lord Jesus Christ, will talk about in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. So therefore, one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's what she's doing. She's renouncing everything else for the Lord and to be with his people. I would rather have the Lord and nothing else than to have everything else this world has to offer without him. And I think in, to end, we, we see in this passage it, it asking the same question of us, really. The Lord has acted. The Lord has acted for the world in his son, Jesus Christ. How will we react to what he's done? Um, where will we turn? Because there's a sense in which turning to the Lord Jesus Christ means leaving everything else. It certainly means leaving a lot that this world has to offer and a lot that this world puts priorities on. And there's a great temptation to see all that the world has and to say, I think it would still be better to have the world if I have to sacrifice the Lord to have it. And what this passage is reminding us is that's the fool's choice. Because everything minus Jesus is really nothing in the end. Um, It's encouraging us to make the choice that Ruth made. To recognize that even if it's just the Lord plus nothing else in this world, that's everything. That's everything. To have the Lord. Um, And if we've made the better choice and chosen the better portion... Let's not let us ourselves get a big head or look down at the rest of the world that hasn't come to the Lord because we need to be reminded it was because the Lord acted first that we put our faith and trust in him. It was because he visited this world in his son and because his son sent his spirit to visit us that we know the Lord. And we maybe make it our prayer that many more people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation in the world would come to know the Lord and make the choice to turn back from following the world and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, clinging to him in life and death, that they might find rest for their souls. May we all find that. Amen.